Fantastic. Yes, in a moment we are going to turn to Acts chapter 7. Uh, I'm just going to tell you a quick story of yesterday, uh, a few of us were at the uh, Jubilee Plus Churches That Change Communities conference, so I just thought I'd tell you a little bit about it. Uh, if you don't know, Jubilee Plus is a charity that uh, equips churches in helping the poor, uh, and it was just a fantastic day to be together. And so much of what we've heard today about the battle being God's, about God being in control, was so much of a theme of what was coming through. So me, Bev and Chris were down there yesterday, and just hearing that wonderful sense of, well, not that wonderful sense to start with, that, that reality of there's growing darkness in the nation. There are growing problems in the nation uh, of injustice and inequality and of poverty and all of that. But in all of that, we have a much bigger God. And a real sense of actually laying all of this before him. Again, what we've been hearing this morning. Laying that before him. Don't try and be the saviour or the hero yourself, but lay it before him. And know that God has the answers. So, I just wanted to tell you uh, that. Now you might say, what, what's that got to do with what you're about to preach? And I'll tell you, pretty much nothing. But... We are about to, and I'm going to make it something. I also really just wanted to tell you about that. If, I, I, don't know whether all the, I don't know whether the talks will be available on the website, but Chris is nodding at me. I'd encourage you, go and check out anything and everything you can find of it. It was really, really good, really encouraging, really stirring. But what we're going to hear today is Stephen is ac accused. Grant kind of led us into this last week. I have caught up, Grant. I wasn't here last week. We were at Shaikh. That was great. I could tell you a story about No, I won't tell you a story about that. We'll run out of time. But I've caught up. But we're going to hear Stephen accused. You're speaking against Moses and against the temple. You're speaking against uh, the law and against God himself. And we hear Stephen's answer today. And Stephen tells a story. A big story. And in one sense, you can start reading the story, and some people have, and go, Stephen, what are you talking about? Why are you going over all of this? They know all of that. What are you talking about? Answer their question. And yet, unlike my story about Jubilee Plus, which doesn't answer their question directly, Stephen is telling this story directly to show them how they are wrong in their accusation to answer their charges, to tell the big picture and the story. This is what God is really saying. Stephen's story is anything but irrelevant. And stories are powerful. They're powerful things. And we'll see that today as we look at Stephen's story. So, Acts chapter 7, buckle up. We're going to read it all which will take a little while, but this is glorious stuff. And so, maybe everyone, but children particularly, this is a massive story that we're going to read. I can see all sorts of pictures coming from this story. In fact, I could see, if you're really quick, I could see an incredibly detailed comic strip appearing out of this as we journey all the way through so much of the story of God's people. So... You don't have to. I'm not, going to be, I'm not going to be checking off at the end. Hang on, where's your picture? 
But if you wanted to, and it helps you concentrate, and it will help you listen to what God is saying through this story, you might be thinking, okay, what could, what's happening now? What's happening with Abraham? What's happening with Moses? What's happening in this part of the story? And you might want to draw it, or you might want to make some notes about it. But we're going to, we're going to go through it. We're going to read Acts chapter 7, and then I'll make some points. Acts chapter 7 and verse 1. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and he settled in Haran. And after the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you're now living. He gave him no inheritance there, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. But as the patriarchs, Jacob's sons, were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all of Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all, and then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had brought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people, and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born. And he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for by his family. And when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian. 
So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they didn't. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was ill-treating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? You thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When, they saw that, when he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. He went over to get a closer look and he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I've indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time. That was the time that he made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? For 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel, you have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favour and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? 
Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. I'm going to stop there. Find out what happens next, next week. Before I go anywhere, I'm going to pray. It's amazing what God has already been speaking to us today. And Lord, I just pray as we hear your word, as we, we look at it together, Lord, as we continue meeting with you this morning, Lord, would you draw us to fix our eyes on you and to trust you. Lord, as, as Will and Blessan and Anne and others have already said, Lord, have already led us in that place. Lord, let us lay everything at your feet. Every aspect of our lives, every care and consideration, everything that we face, Lord, let us lay it at your feet, knowing we can trust you. Lord, help us today. Amen. Amen. You see, Stephen's asked a question. What are the answers to these charges? What's your answer to these charges? We're saying you've spoken blasphemous words against Moses and against God. We're saying that you never stop speaking against this place, the temple, and against the law. Are these charges true, Stephen? We could ask ourselves the question, how do we answer accusation? How do we deal with those who challenge us, those who challenge our beliefs, those who disagree with us, those who just think we're mad because we believe Jesus, because we believe this book, because we believe that he died and rose again? Now, in hearing a question like that, are these charges true, Stephen? So much, particularly... In the Western world, so much, well, I can speak for myself, so much, I want a direct answer, Stephen. Tell me, are they true or not? In fact, so much in the Western world, wanting a soundbite of an answer. Be careful, the first three words that come out of your mouth, they're going to be used. That's the answer. That's what it's going to be. Stephen, start picking the charges apart. Try, try and work out, well, when you say I'm speaking against Moses. What is it that you really mean? But so much of our culture, certainly around us in the UK, is, come on, give me a direct answer to the question. Tell me what it's about. And, and if you can avoid it, then okay. But answer my question, Stephen. Come on, Stephen, what's your answer? I can start looking at the question and I can start thinking, Different, different thoughts about the question itself. Well, I could be thinking, well, how can they even be suggesting that that's what Stephen's doing? Or I can start thinking, well, is that technically true? Is he? We can want to pick apart their statements. If we're faced with such a question, we can want to try and discredit the question somehow. We can want to desperately try and vindicate or defend ourselves. 
But actually, as we see Stephen's answer, if we just read it together, Stephen doesn't do this. How does Stephen respond? Well, he tells this glorious story. Just as an aside here, look here at the power of storytelling. This is such a powerful story. It's a true story. It's a provocative story. And let me just say to us at the start, our stories, the stories of what God has done in our lives, the story of, of what we've believed to be true from the word, they're powerful. They're powerful stories. Even perhaps my story of what happened yesterday at Jubilee Plus could be powerful in some way. Actually, maybe that's what my excitement about that might encourage you to go and listen to it. The stories are powerful. But as Stephen tells this story, we see great lessons in how to speak to those who disagree with us. Because in telling this story, what we see are three things, of course. Firstly, we see the big picture. And we'll go on to see that Stephen has big love. See, I'm, I'm doing really, I'm forcing this a little bit. But we're also going to see that Stephen is not scared to tell big truth. See, you have big, 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 big picture, big story, big love, big truth. If I can even remember them myself. We're going to look at those three things, hopefully fairly quickly. I don't want to, I don't want to take too long. I want, to, I want us to pray at the end. I think that's where I'm at. I want us to respond. But before we look in more detail, step back a second. What does this passage show us? I think it would say, well done, Stephen. Well done, Stephen. And as we look this week and next week, actually what we see, and I hope we recognise there is a glorious victory going on here. Of course, we probably already know, whether it's spoilers from Grant last week or whether it's just our knowledge of the story. Stephen's heading to a martyr's death. But there is a glorious victory going on here. As Stephen stands up and says, this is what's true. I'm not bowing down. I'm not changing what I believe. This is what's true, and, and I want you to believe it too. There is a great victory going on. And Stephen, so wonderfully, is doing what Jesus encouraged his disciples uh, would be the case. In Luke chapter 12, demonstrating this so wonderfully. In Luke 12... And verse 11, when you're brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you'll defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. And as Peter will go on to say in one of his letters, instructing us, always be ready to give an answer to the hope uh, that you profess. This is Stephen. Stephen's there, he's brought before them and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's given the words to say, well done, Stephen. Praise God for his work in Stephen in this moment. But let's look. Three things. Firstly, the big picture. You see, in the face of a big challenge and accusation, Stephen doesn't just resort to giving a direct answer. He's not looking to pick apart the charges. Well, hang on. 
You say, you say I, I'm speaking against Moses. Could you just clarify that a little bit? Tell me exactly what it is that I've said that you don't like. No, he doesn't do that. But he lifts his eyes and he lifts their eyes and he lifts our eyes to the glorious big picture of God's dealings with his people. And you see, as we've read just now, he leads us to see God's dealings with Abraham, how he called him in the beginning with Isaac and with Jacob, with Joseph and how he was sold into slavery, but how God was with him and how God was with the people of Israel in Egypt, of how God didn't leave them there, but he called Moses and led them out of Egypt into the wilderness, to Mount Sinai, and eventually under Joshua into the promised lands having given them the tabernacle and the law. How God was with his people in speaking to David and then to Solomon about building the temple itself. Stephen lifts their eyes, lifts his eyes, lifts our eyes. This is God's big story. It's the story of their history and it's the story of our history. The story of how God has dealt with his people throughout history. How God has met with them through the generations. He's spoken to them, called them, rescued them, instructed them. It's an incredible story. This is the gospel. God's story of him dealing with his people, ultimately through Jesus coming and dying on the cross and rising again. This is the story of God calling a people to himself. This is a huge story, a powerful, true, provocative story. You see, Stephen starts into this story, you could have a kind of view, ah, ah, story, that'll be nice. Let's settle down, get comfortable. It's not comfortable. <laughs> Stories are powerful. And they can be hard-hitting and provocative, and that is certainly the case here. Stephen lifts their eyes to the big picture. He's going to answer them. He's bringing an answer to their charges, as we're going to see. But Stephen lifts their eyes to the big picture, and it's clear that Stephen understands the big picture. You see, in the face of accusation... In the face of challenge, in the face of them going, we don't like what you're doing. We don't like what you're saying. We don't get it. We're not, we don't, we don't like it. You've got to stop. He's not desperate to escape or to desperately vindicate himself or to somehow weasel his way out of this situation. He understands the big picture. This is all for the glory of God's. Even as he tells the story through the ups and downs of the journey of God's people, through slavery and rescue, wilderness and promised land, temple building and temple destruction and exile and return. God was and is working for his glory. What a God. This is where Stephen lifts his eyes. This is what Stephen's focused on. He sees the big picture. He sees the big God. He sees God who is in control of everything. You see, this is Stephen's God. 
And for Stephen, we see that actually in a couple of verses' time, it's going to end in martyrdom. But in the face of accusation, his eyes are fixed on the big picture, on God's plan, on God's glory. He's living for him, for his plan, his purpose, trusting him, his sovereignty, his wisdom, his resources, his answer. Stephen tells the big picture and he understands the big picture. It's all for God's glory. So let's have our eyes lifted as well to the big picture. God is in control. God is in control. We have a massive God. A God who's in control when it appears to be going utterly wrong. A God who's in control when we're seeing massive strides forward. A God who's in control when everything seems to be falling apart. He is still in control. And he is still working for his glory. We see the big picture. But Stephen also communicates big love. What do I mean? Stephen approaches his accusers with love. We've got the leaders, we've got all these guys who've come and they've, they've forced them to say certain things and different things are going on. They've been really nasty. They're really not conniving and manipulative and all of that stuff. And yet, as he stands before them, Stephen begins his reply, brothers, fathers, listen to me. Listen to me here. Hear and understand. Come, you're charging me with all sorts of stuff. But listen, this is our history. This is what God has done. This, hear me of what God is saying to you. In the face of accusation, his response is not to tear his accusers apart. But to attempt to win them. He's going to challenge them, certainly. We'll come to that. But there is tenderness. There is respect here. There is love. And as we see from his story, not only is he showing his respect and, and his love for those who are accusing him, but he demonstrates his respect, his knowledge of, his love for God and for the history of his people, for what God has done through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon and etc, etc. Et all that heritage, all that history which they are accusing him of speaking against. Stephen demonstrates his love, his passion and his understanding for the truth. As he leads them through. This is our history. He shows his love. He shows his heart. His passion is clear. You say, I'm attacking all this heritage. I share this heritage. I love this. I love what God has done through the centuries, through our forefathers. How he called Abraham and spoke to him and met with him. How he was with Joseph, even when his brothers rejected him and went with him. How he brought him into the palace of, of Pharaoh. How God rescued our people 
how he led them through the wilderness and into the promised land. Stephen's passion in his heart is clear. He loves this. He loves God. He loves this, dare I say. My challenge to us today, do we love this story? Do we love this truth? Do we love this word? This is God's story. What Stephen tells, this is God's story and it's our story which he has brought us into. Today, do you see this glorious story that he's included us in? As Paul tells us in Galatians 3.29, if we're in Christ, then we are Abraham's children and we are heirs to the promise. We're in. We're in this if we're in Christ. It's not disconnected. It's not unrelated. God has been working from the beginning, calling a people to himself. So as I read earlier on in the worship time, when this matters to us, when God gave his promise to Abraham, but we're living in that promise. We're living in that glorious promise. This story is ours. We're part of it. Do we love it? Do we love this story? And perhaps more challengingly, do we love those who disagree with us? Yes, we can talk so powerfully about having hearts for the lost, but those who are openly opposing us, openly opposing the word of God, openly mocking this truth, those who want to persecute us or make our lives difficult at work, those who we see in the media or on television or whatever, openly mocking and belittling what we know is true from the words. But Jesus challenges us in Matthew chapter 5. In verse 43, this is the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, or you've heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Can we love those who are openly opposed to us? Well, we see Stephen's example and we hear Jesus' words. I'll tell you the truth. We can only do it in the power of the Spirit. Stephen shows and demonstrates a big love. A big love for those who are accusing him, but a big love which doesn't shy away from telling big truth. In fact, even in preparing this, some would, some would accuse Stephen and criticise him of not actually answering their charges. He goes on this rambling story, just telling their past. They already know all of that. But the reality is, Stephen doesn't pull any punches. Stephen certainly comes to the point. He shows his love 
for that which they accuse him of attacking, but he shows his understanding and reveals to them that they've got it wrong. You see, Stephen's understanding of showing love doesn't just extend to, well, I'll just go softly, softly with you. I would suggest Stephen loves them enough to tell them the truth. You see, they're focused in on the temple and their current position and their ways. This, this is God's dwelling place with us. This is where we meet with God. This is what is so important. And you're speaking against all of this. Yet they're failing to see the big picture of what God has done right in their midst. You see, as Stephen tells his story, he tells the big truth that shows the temple, Moses, the law, all of it, all of it has been pointing somewhere. All of it has been pointing, it's been what God has been doing with us through our history, pointing to this. Jesus has come. Jesus has come. He shows through his story, you talk about the temple, but God has met with our people in different times and in different places all through our history. With Abraham in Mesopotamia, with Joseph in Egypt, with, God, with Moses called in Midian and then led through the wilderness. Yes, he called David and then Solomon to build the temple. But Stephen shows them and then confirms. This is the truth of God. In verse 48 of Acts 7. It was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things. God's not constrained to one place or one house or one city. He's at work and has been at work and has been speaking and has been meeting with his people throughout history. And he shows them the true understanding that Moses knew that one was coming after me. There will be a prophet like me risen up from among you. This is what God has always been doing. God called Abraham. He worked through Joseph. He rescued his people through Moses. He led them through the wilderness and then into the land with Joshua. He established the kingdom. He built the temple. He sent them into exile and then back again. And it was all pointing to and leading to and building to Jesus coming. And Stephen tells them it all and he doesn't shy away from bringing the real challenge. I love you guys. Listen to this. Hear it. Well, he doesn't sound like he loves them very much, Rich. Loved them very much. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. I would point out that Stephen's love goes far enough to bring a challenge that strong. 
because he wants to make it clear to them, it's not me who's speaking against Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David and Solomon and against the law and the temple. But you guys, the leaders who are accusing him, you've missed it. Like their ancestors who rejected the prophets, they've now rejected and failed to recognize the righteous one. Jesus has come and you've rejected him. Turn to him. Turn to him. And so desperately trying to cling on to, don't talk against the temple, don't talk against Moses and the law. They've missed the fact that Jesus was the prophet like Moses. Jesus was the fulfiller of the law. Jesus was the temple itself, the one who he said, well, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And Stephen's not afraid to point it out. In the face of accusation, under huge pressure, Stephen is not going to compromise with the truth. You see, it'd be so easy for him to have gone easy and to give a diplomatic answer. Well, you say I'm speaking against Moses. Really, I think we're on the same page, really. Um, just let me go and we'll work it out somehow. He doesn't go there. You see, his love extends to bringing the truth. His love for God extends to saying, I'm not going to compromise here. And he genuinely speaks the truth in love. Doesn't sugarcoat it, doesn't compromise it. Essentially, if I can summarize his speech, brothers and fathers, you need to hear this. Don't miss Jesus. So what do we do? How do we deal with accusation? How do we deal with those who oppose what we believe? How do we deal, how do we show genuine love for those around us who are lost and hurting? Do we love our friends and neighbours, our family members enough to bring the truth? with wisdom and discernment and sensitivity, but to challenge. How do we deal with it when we're genuinely facing the challenge of persecution? Stephen's going to die. And yet he trusts God with everything. Can I encourage us, let's hold on to this big picture. Let's hold on to the fact that God is in control. Let's hold on to the fact that he is worth it. It's a big challenge. We're called to love our enemies and to, we're called to hold out the truth. And to do that, like Stephen, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need him working in us, living in us, calling us back to this, to understand and to know the truth. That when we face challenge, in fact, when we're, we're just in and amongst our non-Christian friends, we can know and trust God that he will give us the words to speak at the right time. That we can show love and compassion and bring truth into all those situations. Bumpy landing. Bang. Finish. <laughs> 